Welcome to Season 4 of the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. I'm Karen Hay and this season we're delighted to bring you the voices of authors from the deep south of New Zealand. Barbara Else has written for the stage and the page, for children and for adults, and has also worked as a literary agent, editor and fiction consultant. She's held fellowships and scholarships throughout her career, was made a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit, and was awarded the Margaret Mahi Medal, both in recognition of her services to literature. Whatever genre and whatever audience, Barbara has a reputation as a writer of wit and humour. In 2020, Barbara talked with Naomi Arnold about finding her gift for humour during the writing of her first plays. Yes, I haven't particularly written anything that consciously funny before then. But um, with the plays, especially the one-act plays, I discovered that I had this, I could use aspects of real life as I'd seen them and and turn them into something satirical. It just seemed to happen. So I was finding through all this other stuff, I was sort of finding what what was what came easily to me, I think. Mm. And were they performed by the um, society by the dramatic society? Yeah, and that was that was fabulous because I had this group of people who were perfectly willing to be used as as, as sort of guinea pigs to run around the, the maze of the play I'd created and I could see where it would need shaping and, and I could get feedback from them and uh, it, was, it was fabulous. Mm. Um, it was so collegial, that was one of the things about it that I really enjoyed. Did you have a writing, a wider writing community at that point? Yeah, it did, I did start to develop a writing community, um, I think it must have been the year after we'd come back, 1981 probably. Um, I went to Fiona Kidman's writing course held by the community, what is it, community education um, part of the university. Um, And I just loved that. So that was short stories. So I was writing short stories at the same time as starting to write plays. Mm. So you're your 30s at this point, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. Were you a part of the NZSA at all? At that I got asked to join that, um, I don't know what year it would have been, but they, yes, I was asked to join. I'd had a handful of short stories and maybe one or two plays performed. Um, but I didn't really take part in, in well, it, there weren't really any local activities at that point. It was just being a member. I was getting short stories published fairly regularly and getting the plays performed and other other groups were taking them up. I also had a, a radio play accepted. Um, so I was doing a lot. And then I got a phone call one day. NZSA was still pen at, at that stage and they were thinking about... Um, thinking about setting up branches around the country rather than just having the, the it was located in Auckland mostly, although the, um, the president at that point was Harvey McQueen, who was Wellington, and 
Jeannie, Jeannie Jones, who was then Jeannie Moiser, was the, um, I'm not sure what her title was, registrar, I think. She was also the official administrative person anyway. Um, I got a phone call from Jeannie at one point saying they were going to have a meeting about setting up a local branch and would I be interested in going along. And I thought, hey, me, um, you know, I'm sure there are, you know, people who are more um, involved in, in that sort of thing than me, but I thought, well, this is interesting, I've got to be, you know, my drive to become a writer, I thought I've got to, this is a chance to actually stand up and sort of say to, to myself, I am a writer, I'm involved in this, in the society. Um, so I went along to that. And then you met Chris there. Yes, yeah. And I'd, I'd known, I, I knew his name because he and I had both been published together in a, an issue of Pilgrims, that literary magazine. He'd had a book of short stories published. I'm not exactly sure what year, but I'd seen a copy of that in the Karori Library and, and um, got that out and thought, oh, this is someone who actually write stories but no Pahuta car was <laughs> a little bit more mature <laughs> yes. no paddocks and cow pats and Pahuta car was <laughs> that's what we, yeah, we grew up on <laughs> was that the literature that you'd have grown up with in New Zealand literature yeah yeah um, yeah I had yeah. yeah and so far as I had noticed New Zealand literature it seemed to be very yeah, focused on that sort of stuff rather than rather than things of the mind, I, I suppose. Although that's that's a, a very unfair way of putting it, and I, I don't know how much I'd actually read a little bit through university, but not much otherwise. Not very much at school. Had there been a, a focus that you did? You take any papers or a course at uni on New Zealand literature? Or no, I don't think there was one. Yeah. Um, Amazing, isn't it? Not not then. My first year. Of English, we we had um, a copy of Landfall Country, which is that great big thick book. It was the first twenty years or twenty five years of stuff that had been published in Landfall. Mm. Um, but I don't really remember any other New Zealand literature. Oh, well, Owls Do Cry, of course, we read that year, and I was absolutely gobsmacked by it. And I thought, why the heck? Had I not heard of this writer before, I had two years at school, mm. secondary school in Omaru, and I'd never really, why? And I think it's because that was the point when the um, English department had to import a lot of overseas teachers because there were so few secondary teachers here in New Zealand. My English teacher at Waitaki Girls, I think she was quite good, but she was quite young, she didn't know New Zealand literature at all and was never talked about. And yet Janet Brain had just had Niles Do Cry published. Why on earth wasn't the school talking about it? Was it the, the cultural cringe or was it just that it didn't, it wasn't important enough? I don't know. Partly because she wouldn't have really thought New Zealand literature was that important. I, I don't know. That might be very unfair to her. She might have been so bemused by coming all this way to teach, you know, having to make such a change herself that she couldn't think beyond using beyond using her own um, training. 
but also possibly a cringe in Omaru. They, they couldn't quite perhaps cope at that point with, with having someone so so um, different to everyone else in Omaru. I think they've changed now. I, they, I know they've changed now, but at that point, um, yeah, it's very complex, I think. Did Els Do Cry give you a sense of who you could be as a New Zealand writer? I wasn't thinking in those terms, but I remember just being so stunned by by how wonderful it was and that it was set in Omaru that I had lived. So I think on a on a subterranean level it would have had a big impact. But I was still not thinking of myself as ever becoming a writer. Um, if you've studied literature in depth, and I, I did some very in-depth papers, you just don't think that you will be able to do it yourself. It's far too complex. <laughs> you don't realise at that, well, I didn't realise at that stage of my life that you absorb the significance of all these complex technical matters. You absorb it and then you just unconsciously use it later or you learn how to use it later in your own writing. You're still, you know, you're still very young when you get this. Why did um, Penn want to set up regional outposts, or to give? I think to give writers more, more, um, more sense that they could participate in what the society was doing. I suppose it was a very sensible move, but I guess it had to get to a certain size before they could think of doing that, and certainly. Um, Wellington branch writers in Wellington grabbed the opportunity once it was set up and um, I think it's it's done fabulous things for writers just simply giving them that that official group that they can join and, and take part in activities that are supplied by the by the group mm. so you Helped you and Chris and others helped set up the Wellington branch. Were you on a committee or did you have any um, positions? Yes, there was. They set up a committee. Um, our first ideas were very ambitious, um, which is good. And I would say maybe a third of them actually got going, which is probably also good. Um, what sort of ideas? We had to decide that the people hit there at the first meeting didn't necessarily go on the committee, but um, I did. And uh, we were going to set up small groups for, for instance, people who were interested in the short story would all get together and someone would coordinate the group and sort of run it however they, however the group decided. There was going to be one on non-fiction, one on playwriting, and they said, oh, Barbara, you can do that, and I thought help <laughs> okay <laughs> oh well it won't be um we'll just see what happens um but luckily for me nobody wanted to sign up for that and um jenny jenny jones and chris had both said that they'd do short story groups we'd thought that there would be enough people to for two but there was really only enough for one so jenny and i 
said to Chris, do you mind if we join your group? And he looked quite horrified, really, and said, all right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that group was was really, really interesting and useful. Um, a lot of us would have had quite a bit published. Some would have had very little published, but none of that matters. You're just there as a group, reading your work aloud, getting feedback, and you know from simply the way you're reading whether it's, whether you've caught the audience or not. I think that's something that my theatre training has been really helpful for. Um, learning how to read aloud. It's actually a useful tool for anyone. As I'm, you've probably discovered anything you write at some point you ought to read aloud um, to see... You know, it doesn't work on that level. It really helps you prune out. Prune, prune out the rubbish. Mm. So you'd had several published plays by then? Um... Um, I did have a couple published. Um, it was a radio play, which I guess you call published in its way. Most of them were performed by amateur groups. Um, not just the Karori Dramatic Society, but, but others. And that, that was nice when that started to happen because it means, okay, it's not just your friends saying, yeah. saying, jolly good, Barbara. <laughs> it's other people too. Mm. What was that like having your first book? Or was it a publishing company that you approached or how did the publication happen? That's The Warrior Queen. Oh, the, the plays. Oh, the plays. Uh, yes, that was... Life um, of Clowns, A Very Short History of the World. Yeah, that was... Um, Oh, that was fabulous to think it really they really do think it's worth publishing and putting into schools. And you know, even all these years later I'm sure the place must have dated horribly by now. But even now I can still get, you know, a cheque for seventy bucks, something like that. Some of the schools put on this or that and I think, well, Goodness me, I don't know how well it will have gone, but it's very nice. Thank you. So at what point did you do the course at um, Victoria University? That was 1987. Um, I think I, I would have decided, well, obviously I would have decided the year before, 1986. That was the year. In 86, I think I decided that I was starting to realise that if I was going to get anywhere with my writing I had to be much more rigorous with technique and other things that I probably didn't even know about um, so standing up and saying yes I'll be on the committee was was one step deciding that I that the Bill Mannheim course would would help was, was another thing just to keep forcing myself, I think, to, to be more proactive about being a writer. Um, I had a few friends by then who were writers, mostly women, and we didn't really talk about craft. We'd talk about, you know, where to submit stories and that sort of thing, but not about craft. I thought, oh, no, I need to know more about craft. Um, and so doing the original composition course was was an obvious step. So, I mean, today there's that sense that that's very much a springboard to a brilliant first novel and a writing career. Mm. Was that 
sense around when you did the course in 87, was it? No. Um, well, some very good writers had, had done it and, and become successful. Perhaps because of it, perhaps not. Um, it was just really a tool. I felt it was a tool that was available to me and I and to other writers and um, you were foolish if you didn't see if you could make use of it. And my daughter went and did it later and my best friend went and did it later and I had friends who failed to get in and were terribly upset and I remember soothing some of them and saying, look, don't worry, it's not the only way to become a writer. It's not necessarily helpful to everyone anyway. Um, it's just, you know, who knows? It's just something that you might or might not be able to do. You're listening to the NZSA Oral History Podcast. We'll be back to the podcast in a moment, but we wanted to take this opportunity to let you know about the new online Writer Toolkit. From getting a new project started to negotiating a contract, the Writer Toolkit will take you through a year's worth of learning about craft and industry. Taught by experienced writing professionals, the Writer Toolkit will contain pre-recorded online content with writing exercises or assignments which you can work through at your own pace. Visit authors.org.nz to learn more. Barbara had been writing plays and short stories for many years when she published her first novel, The Warrior Queen. It was a bestseller, one of the top 20 books for the 1995 Listener Women's Book Festival and was shortlisted for the 1996 Montana New Zealand Book Awards. Fifteen years after it was published, Naomi asked Barbara to tell her the story behind the novel. I was working for the tertiary sector and it was a very dull day. And I began, I thought, oh, what do I do? And I began to scribble or something. And I thought, oh, it's the beginning of a short story. And it did actually turn into a short story, which became the first chapter of Warrior Queen. And that was, the story was published in Metro. And Morris G said it was, it was really good, which I thought, wow, career pinnacle. <laughs> I could stop now. Um, <laughs> and someone else, it was Tilly Lloyd from Unity Books, said, um, oh, Barbara, I loved that extract you had published. And I thought, oh, it was a short story. But then I thought, mm, well, maybe it could be, could it be expanded? And I decided it could. And so um, that's when I finally kind of opened the gates of satire and, and was really writing about that awful social, professional so socialising that, that you do if you're the partner of someone in, in, in any profession. Um, I decided to use the medical profession, but I did consider others. But I thought, well, actually, you know, I know I was there. I can use that to be less research to do. If I'd chosen to make it a lawyer or an architect, um, 
or even a banker. There would have been more more work to do figuring out what would be what would be some of the texture of the background. Mm. Um, so having gone through a marriage breakup very recently and while mm. writing this, did that how are you feeling about that and did that leak into the text at all? I don't I wasn't aware of that at the time and I'd I'd have to reread the book to see how much did leak through. Um, I, I, I really don't know. I did think while I was writing it that Jim would have felt that the social satire was very funny. Um, but he died before it came out, so uh, who knows. So he would have been late 30s, early 40s? Um, late 40s. Late, late 40s, I think he was 48. Okay, yeah. yeah. How did that affect um, you? That must have just been a fault. That was that was absolutely appalling. Um, I don't know what the matter with me was. I mean, he'd, we'd been divorced. I'd been married to Chris by then for a few years, or a couple of years. We we got the news late on a Sunday evening, and Chris was going away to do a technical teaching. Um, gig the following day and he said I, I, I can't he said I can't go I can't leave you and I said I'm fine I'm perfectly fine I'm going to be looking after the girls I'm absolutely fine and he did go and then I wondered why I couldn't move and it was it took me hours to realise that you know this was grief it was just a Extraordinary. You forget how physical mm. something like that is. Yeah, that was that was terrible. Such a shame you didn't get to see your success with that novel. Ah, uh, yes. I think he, he he knew that it was coming out, and he'd he'd um. But what upsets me more than that is that he. He'd, he'd worked himself to an early grave and he didn't see the grandchildren. Mm. And, um, yeah, I remember feeling incredibly angry with him <laughs> when our first grandchild was born, thinking, you should have taken more care of yourself because you would have loved this so much. Mm. Is that something you were often saying to him, that he was working too hard? Or? Yeah, yeah. I used to say to him, I don't want to be a young widow. And um, you know, I suppose I wasn't. But mm. it's quite a backdrop um, to have the book come out, and it was on the bestseller list for about a year or so, wasn't it? Yes, it, it, it was several months anyway. Um, that was the interesting thing about that is that that was when the New Zealand bestseller list was all genres, mm. and it was hard for a novel to get on there let alone to stay there. I think the book that was top most of the time then was Michael Hall's book on trusts, family trusts. <laughs> so you have the family trust book and then the warrior queen. That's, so That's kind of ironic, isn't it? <laughs> That's brilliant. What were your aims with the novel when you were writing it? Oh, it was a, a joyful book to write in terms of the process it was fun. It was such fun to write. 
I think I just... One thing I've realised is that, or I've realised how important it was, was I was writing really for one person, the ideal reader, and she was... She was not me, but she was about my age and about my sort of economic bracket, I suppose. And she was intelligent and she had a sense of humour. And it was as if I was sitting sitting quite close to her and I was writing for this person. And so it was like, it wasn't a conversation, but it was, it was a very focused audience. Now I've often said to other writers when they're working on the material who are you writing for you've got to focus because that will help the book decide what it is you've got to have some sort of focus and um, without sort of realising that that is possibly one of the reasons for the Warrior Queen doing so well you get one, you get the audience right and somehow that means anyone can appreciate what you're doing. And so you get a wider, wider audience by focusing on a smaller audience. Does it make sense? I'm not sure how it makes sense, but it, but it does. Yeah. Mm. I can see the character that you were writing for in the character, in the group of characters in the novel. Yeah. You, know, you can really get a sense of who, who would just be shaking their fists along with the text. <laughs> um, so were you surprised at the success? Completely. Absolutely completely. Yeah, I thought it would be a slow burner. It would go for a couple of years and sell a couple of thousand. And that would have been fine. You know, that would, I would have been really pleased. But the, the first print run of two and a half thousand had sold out before it was even before we'd even had the launch. I don't know how that happened. I mean, I don't know how they could sell before the book was actually out there, but I think booksellers just had a sense that they would be able to sell it, and they so they bought a lot. And at the little launch, there were two launches, one tiny little party at Godwood Publishers in Auckland that I went to, where there was just book trade people, and then a bigger launch, official launch in Leamington. But at that little one in the Godwit rooms, um, I heard Brian Phillips, the publisher, say to um, say to someone, "Oh, we've we've just ordered a reprint." And I'm not sure what her name was. Um, Chris will remember the Whitcalls person saying to him, "Oh, it's it's just appearing on our bestseller list." And I thought, "What? I don't even." Not even supposed to be out there yet. So I was kind of mystified. You know, this is this is a dream. It's very nice. <laughs> Might wake up any minute. Um, reviews were really positive, except for one in Dunedin, which I thought was marvelous. It was by an elderly gentleman, and he said maybe. The medical profession that lives in Rumuera does behave like this, but I'm quite sure they don't in Maori Hill, Dunedin. Maori Hill. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> if that's not going to get readers, what is? 
Well, what was the so? What was the time? The social time like then? I mean, the eighties had been and gone. What did it say about New Zealand at that time? Well, I suppose it said something about feminism. Um, and that was certainly what I had personally experienced that women were feeling a lot more able to speak up but they were very careful about when Um, and I think men in that bracket were a lot of them were resisting quite quite strongly the the change that had certainly been signalled in the 70s and I think perhaps it was perhaps it was making a lot of men um, feel very uncomfortable but one thing that surprised me about the the reception of the book was how many men loved it and at one point an academic pointed out to me that a lot of men suffer from the patriarchy as well, especially gay men, especially men who are in junior positions in you know, the standard sort of hierarchies in business and professions. Um, so, you know, they, they they know they know those men who are You were describing toxic masculinity before we had that word for it. I think I probably was, wasn't I? Yeah. yeah the way mm. um, the father treats the son. No. Oh, that's so cruel. Yeah. Yeah. It's all a joke. Can't you take a joke? Mm. The son just yes, silently walks upstairs, you know. Yeah. 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 It did feel very New Zealand. Yeah, New Zealand masculinity. So you managed to skewer that. Um, and then Gingerbread Husbands was your next novel. Yes. How was the old second novel? Uh, second it? novel well, syndrome. I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I'd had a children's novel published in between Gingerbread Husbands coming out. So um, <clears throat> actually, that that's called Skitterfoot Leaper. Oh yes. And that's the. I wish I'd let myself be funnier with that. I was still a bit. Faced to say, <laughs> and I hadn't really realised how humour, how I could do humour when writing for children. The plays had been funny, but somehow that first novel wasn't. Um, so yeah, that that had come out. Skinnerfoot Leaper was quite. It wasn't not funny, you know. It was um, that there was a lot of knowing comments about grown ups and. Mm. Yeah, what made you turn to doing the children's novel for your next one? It still feels like it was social uh, comment, but sort of for, yeah. for, for younger readers. I don't know. I'd probably <clears throat> the idea had just come to me, and, and it seemed like a good one to a good image. It's the image of that strange cat creature. Um, so I wanted to sort of work at that. Um, so really, I've just done. With anything, it's just you know, is is the idea, is it is it a good idea? Is it going to go away, or you know, can I find a story in it? Well, it's been like that with all of them. 
Was there any hint of your own children's dealing with the marriage breakup in that book? I don't think so. Main things. Not that I'm aware, aware of. My children were older than those children. Mm. Um, no, I don't think so. I haven't looked at it for years. <laughs> Who knows what you might find when you look back at <laughs> what you can think you find. <laughs> okay, and um, so how did the was that received? Oh, I can't remember. It got some good reviews and some not so good, I think. Mm. And um, I probably would have agreed with, or would agree now with some of, if they were not so good. Um, the next children's book was was much much better. I think it was funnier. Uh, I knew I knew more about what I was doing. I think by that time, mm. and I can still read chapters from that tricky situations. That was the second. Mm. I can still read chapters from that in writers to schools, writers and schools visits, and get good reaction. Mm. Mm. So then, Gingerbread Husbands was between Skidderfoot and tricky situations. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. I wanted to write about. I, I was quite surprised. By um, the reception to to well, I was very surprised by the reception to Warrior Queen. But well, can I, you know, how do you follow it? I thought, okay, I'll write about a woman who adores men. She finds them just adorable and irresistible. <laughs> but um, that's the character. It wasn't necessarily me, <laughs> and it's because she. She's um, she falls for so many men or finds them so adorable that she gets into such trouble and really has to pull herself together by the end of the, the book. Mm. Yeah. It's a nice counterpart. Yeah. Um, so around then you were at the you were writer residence in Victoria, nineteen ninety nine. Ah, it's my own list. Yes, yes. Um, what was that like? Oh, that was that was. It was quite a load, really. You know, I felt incredibly responsible. <laughs> you know, I've got to do something. I've got to do something. This I did. I did two two books. Well, one one was editing an anthology um, about. It was called Grandstands. That's uh, New Zealand writers on being grandparents. That was that was an interesting thing to pull together. Um, I've just become a grandmother. The year before, so I did grandstands. I was also working on three pretty widows, and that was the most complex narrative that I'd tried in the fiction. Three, or actually four voices, but one um, was a, a, forms a sort of chorus voice. It's the voice of the of the um, the dead husband. Um, the other three voices are women at different different points, different stages of their life. One's very old, one's at a middle age, one's younger, I suppose early middle age, one's middle middle age. Um, and to get the timelines working properly was was complicated. Um, so one of the wonderful things about the fellowship was having a a, a room with corkboard all around, all around the room. I could pin up the timelines, and 
I don't know whether I would have managed otherwise. <laughs> it seems a sort of trivial, um, technical thing. Um, but it's, it's, some writers can do it in their heads. Some people can do it on charts and spreadsheets on their computer. But I, I needed to physically see um, pinned up around the wall when, when things were happening. Did you write, have you written everything that way? Um, yes, pretty much, but uh, because that was so complicated, it was, it was just wonderful to have all those cork boards. I love cork boards. <laughs> <They're> good. <laughs> so, and Grandstands was the beginning of quite a number of anthologies, a very successful anthology editing. Well, yeah, in a way it did lead into that. Um, a year or so later, when was it? I'll have it down here. Um, I was talking to... Oh, Random House got in touch with me and 2000, 2002, so it was three three years or so later, um, Random House got in touch with me and said, would, you, would I be interested in, um, in editing a children's anthology? They'd, they'd done um, 30 New Zealand stories for children. They wanted to do another 30 and they wanted a new editor and I said to Chris I can't do that <laughs> he said why not you've done grandstands and I found out that Harriet Allen the uh, fiction publisher at random had suggested to the children's and non-fiction people that, that she said Barbara was good to deal with she was so easy and so professional and so tidy you know, she'd be good. And she's got contacts through the agency and things like that. And I thought, tidy, well organised. She hasn't seen me at home. Corkboards, though. <laughs> Corkboards, though, yes. <laughs> True. Um, so that's why I asked me. And it did lead into into some fabulous, fabulous experiences doing those anthologies. I just loved it. Um, but while I did that first one, um, there were so many stories sent in and so many that I had to turn down that were really good and I said to Random look there are so many local writers who are doing really lovely fantasy and science fiction stories for children you could do a whole new anthology just with that sort of thing and there are so few outlets in New Zealand for those genres and kids love them and I think it would be a real winner you should find someone to do that and so we were visiting them again oh several months later and I said have you have you found someone to do another anthology are you going ahead with that and they said oh yes we hope you'll do it and I thought it's not what I meant <laughs> not what I meant but but I was delighted um, because it really wasn't that much work it was a few weeks of intense work when, um, you know, the swear words would <laughs> echo through the house. But um, but I loved it. Mm. And and I found, well, it sounds a bit arrogant, but, but there are several names who first appeared as published authors in those anthologies, and they've gone on to be leading, leading writers, and that's just, it's still... You know, real pleasure to think about that.
That's all we have time for today, but our next episode will feature more from this discussion in 2020 between Barbara Alce and Naomi Arnold. The, the first time Chris showed me that manuscript, he said, I think this is ready and I think you need to read it. And I remember very clearly on the first few pages thinking, this is amazing. To make sure you catch that episode and hear past episodes with a range of New Zealand writers, subscribe to the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast on Google, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirkby MacLeod with audio support by Yana Tanahu-Owen for the New Zealand Society of Authors. NZSA would like to thank the Southern Trust for funding this season and also UNESCO and the Otago Community Trust for the funding to record new oral histories with authors based in Otago. Noturno by Ottorino Respigi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. I'm Karen Hay and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. Kakite anō.